0: Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose.
1: Good morning. My name's Enrique Alvarez, and welcome, everyone, to another incredible episode of Logistics with Purpose, partnering with the supply chain now, and I have the pleasure to have a really good co-host as well. Adrian, how are you doing today? Good morning. Good.
0: Good morning, Enrique. Great to be with you. Doing well, and uh, looking forward to having a great discussion here with Michael Jones.
1: I think we're going to have a great guest. I mean, we've, uh, we're very well aware of what he has done and what his organization's done, and uh, it's going to be super interesting and fun. So, I'm ready, ready to start talking with him.
0: Yeah, great. So, um, just want to introduce uh, Michael Jones, the founder and CEO of Thrive Farmers, a local Atlanta company. We know Thrive has known Thrive Farmers for a number of years now met a number of their, of, of their staff and, and become involved with them and uh, think the world of this organization. So, Michael, thanks for making the time today. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. So, just to uh, get into your background a little, if you could uh, start us off with just telling us uh, where you grew up and, and your childhood overall.
2: Yeah, not, not all that exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm from a really small town in middle Georgia, my high school, I think, uh, had 180 people total, or or something, just over. I can remember from a pretty young age being excited to leave my small town and get to the big city. I think at some point, New York was on my mind. I wound up making Atlanta my first stop, thinking that would be you know on the way to New York, and never got there. <laughs> but uh...
1: <laughs> what what caught your attention? Well, why what was it? What was it that gave you?
2: You know, it's funny. I don't know if I can pinpoint exactly when, but somewhere in my teenage years, so I grew up in a family business, car repair business, auto collision, and so as young as I can remember, you know, I'm sanding cars and taping them up and painting them and doing you know that kind of work, sweeping floors, and I just thought to myself, this this isn't what I see myself you know doing, and you know I'd been two generations, but I would have been third generation, but it just wasn't didn't excite me. And somewhere in my teenage years, my dad turned me on to Anthony Robbins as a self help kind of guy. And I joke because I grew up in the '80s that between Anthony Robbins and Robin Leach, I had you know my bookends. I had I had one guy telling me what you know happiness and success looked like, and then I had another guy saying you can do anything you want if you just set your mind to it. So that really that really influenced me heavily. I mean, I, I started to really dream big. Um, I think I was already probably wired in a way to to think like that just based on other things that you know were there from a young young age, but but that did start to to point me, you know, to leave my small town and to think bigger than <clears throat> maybe a lot of people around me. So Yeah. You know, I, was, I was called a, in those days I was called a dreamer. They're like, "Oh, you've got your head in the clouds right. and you're always dreaming about something big." So was your
0: was your dad was your dad a little disappointed that you weren't staying in the family business or did he did no my, to give you your wings
2: no my my dad was an encourager he um he was a marine purple heart marine um oh. had you know left the small town as well and went around the world he was a Vietnam veteran and he's probably one of the most positive guys I've ever been around I'm and sure. <laughs> he he was just like you know you you figure out your path and I'll support you no matter what. So I always had the encouragement to do absolutely whatever I wanted, no expectations at all, whether it was school, work, you know, any of it. Right.
1: Sounds like an incredible, um, like an incredible father, and something that was very important, kind of like early on on your career and your being an entrepreneur. Is there something that he kind of like constantly told you? Any kind of piece of advice that you could share with uh, the younger generations?
2: Well, yeah, my dad had a really high standard of excellence. I mean, he. He would tell me, if you're going to do something, do it right. And he just had not a lot of tolerance for halfway doing something and and doing it lackluster. You know, he he tended to be a bit of a perfectionist. Um, His work ethic was, you know, unbelievable. And, you know, he had worked in in his family business from a very young age to really help support the family. He was the oldest of six siblings. So, you know, a very different time, Um, you know, some family background that just you know was different and caused him to to need to have to do that but um, you know I think I think I had the I had the freedom to 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 dream but the expectation was you know I don't care what you do if you want to be a janitor and go sweep floors that's fine if that fits your passion but if you're going to do that make sure you're the best at it just yeah, yeah. you know do, do, or the the best you're capable of he, he didn't even think that you know, I had to be better than anybody else. It was just I needed to live live up to 100% of my potential, whatever that was. And so that was probably the one thing that I would say, you know, was there. And from both parents, really, was just the support and freedom.
1: Nice. To, and the work, work ethic, probably, too, right? I mean, you're exactly. You've hard always worked really hard. And I'm guessing that you get that from, from them as well.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I work hard at the things that I'm passionate about. Like, even in school, I mean, I had... Right. I had a pretty wide range of grades. I'd have A's in the things that I enjoyed or, you know, cared about. And I would maybe barely get by in you know, something like physics where I felt like it was just, it didn't even make sense to me and I wasn't going to use it. Right. Uh, And so I just, you know, I I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time dreaming about physics when I was away from.
1: (laughs) Not a lot of people can claim that.
2: (laughs) That's right. Any,
1: so what was your favorite subject, and were there any kind of sports that you were passionate about growing up?
2: Yeah, so we, um, my brother and I um, raced motocross competitively. My oh, dad, wow. so very typical. You know, my dad, I think we may have been six, seven years old. I've got one brother, he's two years younger, and we were given just, you know, dirt bikes for Christmas one year, and but more like trail bikes, and we started riding those and enjoying it. And so then my dad upgrades us to motocross bikes, and then he starts wow. taking – races. And before you know it, we're traveling around about a third of the United States at nationally sanctioned races with, you know, kids that are sponsored by big teams. And my dad's trying to, he's our mechanic and he's learning everything he can from people that he meets. And he's got our bikes functioning as private individuals, functioning similarly to these factory riders. And, you know, and we were gone every weekend for about six, seven years. We raced all over the place and our circle of friends really became more our racing buddies so so we did motocross and we did football and my dad was the coach of our teams and just always really involved he he was going to be there to guide us and he would if he needed to go back and work until midnight he would do it to be coach of our team from four o'clock until six in the in the evening you know Did did he uh,
1: race bikes, too, or or he only? He did
2: some. Yeah, he did some. Um, He raced bikes a little bit before us, which is what got us into it. And then I think as we started to take off, he spent more time with us. You know, years later, he started. He became a bodybuilder and wound up winning Mister Georgia. And, and oh, wow! Really? And, <laughs> wow! And
0: years old. And so, that is phenomenal. Just a super, just a just a super achiever. Uh,
2: yeah, he knows. a super achiever, high high standard of excellence, and yeah, so
0: absolutely
2: um, wow. I dare say that I've lived up to any of that. You know, I think it's where I get my my motivation from in certain ways. Just seeing how well he did things. What an
0: inspiration! Uh, yeah. So uh, on uh, getting back to the bike racing, uh, the, the, the circuit. So were you gone pretty much Friday and, and you race Saturday and then traveled yeah. back Sunday or race s- right. Saturday and Sunday? Usually Saturday and Sunday. Uh,
2: yeah. it, it depended on the weekend. But and I can remember, you know, I look at it more fondly now than I may have at the time yeah. every weekend, because there were a lot of times where friends were having birthday parties or other things that you'd miss that we'd miss because we were yeah. gone racing. Yeah, and it was for a season—the racing season. I forget what it was now, but it tended to be sort of right at the end of football season, all the way through spring. So those two things kind of lived in harmony. We could do football and motocross, but for the
0: season—the motocross
2: season—we were gone almost all the
0: time. Right. I don't know too much about the the motocross circuit and and that world. Have you seen it? Have you seen it grow? substantially over the oh, years? Yeah. It's huge. I
2: still enjoy it. The Supercross, it's on TV. It's its actually going on right now with all the pros. You know, we knew some kids that we raced with that moved on up and went pro, and we were in some of those, you know, circles for a while. And, yeah, I mean, it's its like a, almost every other sport. You know, the spectatorship has grown dramatically. The best riders now, they travel, you know, on private jets to each location. They've got trucks that take all their mechanics, you know, to the races Overnight, you know, the best guys make tens of millions of dollars in sponsorships. And, you know, they're like, it's just like football, basketball, baseball, you know. Yeah. Did you
1: ever ever try to go pro or?
2: No. Neither one of us were really at the level probably to truly go pro. It's just like any other sport you know, the further up the ladder you get, there's right. truly just a small elite number. That's The absolute elite, yeah. It is the elite of the elite, yeah. So my and brother get was better that. than I was, but, really. but neither one of
0: us were going to go pro. But to get, to get to that point, you would have had to, what, win? Or, I mean, place top three probably consistently, right, through most of the meets, I would think. To
2: get to pro, you need to be
0: winning all of these national events. The
2: kids that went pro were the ones that were – winning those events constantly and, you know, and clearly, right? They would just be out in front of everybody and so just... Just won. dominating, yeah. Just dominating. And then those go pro. And then even some of those, the kids we knew that were like, everybody was in awe of when they went pro, they yeah, might yeah. be middle of the pack. They're not even... They weren't even the elite yeah. at the pro level. And yeah, so... To
0: get to the yeah.
2: That's different different game
0: yeah. Yeah, that's right.
2: Just how competitive the world can be. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of other factors, right? Injury and, you know, other crashes, you know, and you right. can you can have everything going right and somebody runs into you and it makes you not finish a race and your points go down. And, you know, at any given moment there are a thousand roadblocks ready to just, you know, stop your progress, which right. as you look back and I think about motocross and football, <clears throat> motocross, more of an individual sport, football, obviously team sport And I've I've told I've got three boys now and I've talked to my wife from a really young age about the need for boys to develop grit. And, you know, grit is just this toughness and perseverance. You know, it's it's a number of things kind of melded into one. But I think about my days racing, you know, and playing football. And it gave me a resolve and this ability to persevere and to. Work through really tough moments, right? I mean, in football, sounds pretty bad, but you know, you get your face kicked in. (laughs) It's it's tough, tough.
0: but you know, we're not going to get back up again. Yeah.
2: Well, that's it. We're not doing our kids any favors if we shield them from every bad moment, because guess what? Life's going to be tough.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's true.
2: No, just uh, I. We
1: totally agree. I think that it's definitely important. I think something that we need to kind of encourage even more these days, because I somewhat think that it's going to. being lost sometimes, but mm-hmm. I, it's it's a it's a key life lesson, right? Making mistakes, struggling, uh, taking challenges uh, head on. Tell us, so now going a little bit more into your professional career, how how did you kind of started shaping the professional career that kind of led yeah. you to to where you are?
2: So as I'm nearing the end of high school, you know, I'm starting to get ideas about you know how can I make money, and I, I had. A family uh, working in the family business. I had somebody that worked for the business who was related to an owner of an exotic car dealership up in the Midwest, and um, he knew I was a car car guy and that I liked cars. And you know, he had he had a, a Corvette at the time, and his his cousin actually owned a Lamborghini dealership and nice. had you know those kinds of cars. And so he said, you know, my my cousin's looking for certain cars and is paying finders' fees, and I've been trying to help him find certain vehicles and. So I said, so if you think I found some cars, I could get a finder's fee. And he said, I'm sure. And I said, well, give me a list of some of the cars you're looking for. And so I started going into the, uh, there was no internet at the time. So I'm going into the classified ads in Atlanta, which is the nearest big city. And I'm looking at, you know, cars for sale that would seem to be in an exotic kind of category, right? Expensive cars. And I assume that people that own those cars know other people that own those cars so I just started picking up the phone and calling and networking and saying, Hey, do you know anybody that has a so-and-so? And um, I've got somebody looking to buy one of those. Cause I was, uh, you know, the finder's fee was like $2,500 or something. I, I can't remember it now. Maybe, maybe, you know, it was about what it would take me, you know, nine months to make. Right. <laughs> yeah, five dollars an hour. And um, so anyway, that, that turned me onto this idea. So, I can't even remember the details exactly at this point, but I, I found, I connected with somebody, you know, through about three or four phone calls and found one of the vehicles and got paid a fee. And I saw that work. And so it t- all it took was, you know, that connection to success to go, wow, okay. If I just persevere through these phone calls enough, I'll eventually get to a place where there's a payoff. Right,
0: you can join the dots, yeah. That's right.
2: And so, um, so I wound up, you know, Doing that, and I said earlier, you know, I was a dreamer. I was uh, called a dreamer. Well, I did this, and I started, you know, getting ideas, and I I thought, well, now maybe at some point I could, you know, start a dealership and start, you know, doing this with cars that I that I love and whatever. And um, so I wound up doing that for about a year, um, just as I'm coming out of high school, and I'm I started in a small junior college. Uh, my parents had divorced as I was graduating high school and the money was really not there for me to go off to school like so many of my friends to big you know, big colleges and have the campus experience and um, it, it just wasn't in the cards for me. So I was driving back and forth to a small college and frankly, I got pretty, pretty bored pretty quickly. Uh, I wasn't interested in this, the material being talked about in class. I was sitting here thinking about how could I sell the next car and um, so... Anyway, I I chased that for about a year. I wound up dropping out of uh, that college thinking I had an opportunity with a guy I'd met in that business to potentially get a a factory authorized Ferrari dealership. And we had a whole story and we, we, we put together a business plan. And so here I am, 18 years old, you know, putting together a business plan that I had no idea. I had to just use common sense to figure out what, you know, might be possible. And, um, you know, story for another day, just, it wasn't meant to be, and it wasn't going to happen, but I, I I learned. And from there, I jumped to another business opportunity and, you know, acquired some debt in the process of both of those. My, my mom had loaned me some money uh, during the car phase. um, And then once more for this, this new venture and neither one of them worked out, but I had this debt to repay now. And so, um, you know, that that sent me on another course. I wound up moving to Atlanta, taking a job as a stockbroker trainee. Had somebody that agreed to teach me the business, and I did. I worked in that business for about five years. Did a number of different things, and I and I feel like that's where I started to learn a lot more. <clears throat> I learned about you know trading stocks. I learned about sales. You know, being a stockbroker was predominantly about selling. You'd have to develop a talk track, and you're working the phones and. So, you know, I'm making a lot of calls every day and doing cold calling. And um, it's where I believe I've started to develop real life skills. I've gotten some good experience trying these two businesses and kind of learned quickly, you know, how hard it was to make a business work. But um, I added to that now with, you know, real sales skills. Some, I would, I would say mentors, maybe not in a good way, but some mentors that model things that I realized I don't want to be like that. And um, I I was just talking to my oldest son last week and said that, you know, you've got two opportunities when it comes to mentorship. You can find mentors that model things that you want to be like. And like, you know, I admire this guy and I want to be more like that. What can I learn from him? I said, but the first eight or 10 years of my professional career, I would say I have the other kind of mentors that modeled behaviors and decision-making that I didn't want to be like. Wow. And and both are important, right? Yeah.
1: That's a very good take on on the whole concept of mentorship, right? Because I feel like we also kind of just seek out to those individuals that we really admire and then can give you some positive reinforcement. Right, exactly. but, But you're right. If you pay attention, you can learn probably as much, if not more, from people that actually you don't agree with and people that yeah. that's yeah I, that's a that's a really yeah that's
0: question. actually very refreshing i haven't i haven't heard that being the verbalized like that before yeah <laughs> very, very refreshing
1: very timely as well right because we feel like we're kind of like just breaking apart and we're constantly dividing As like listen we can learn from both i mean
2: <laughs> you absolutely can
1: learn from a bad role model as much as you can from a good one
2: yeah i mean i think that i think that one of the biggest challenges that i see in people is self-awareness, right? We all have blind spots, just human nature. We're never going to see ourselves exactly the way other people perceive us. But the more self-aware we can be, I think the more successful we ultimately can navigate our day-to-day professional lives. And oh, by the way, our personal lives, you know, my marriage.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: So I think that, you know, when I look back at some of these experiences, of people that just engaged in things that I was definitely wanting to avoid, that made me more introspective. Like, okay, is there anything that I'm doing that looks like that? And so I I believe that that can help heighten your self-awareness, which is just a really valuable tool. So.
0: So absolutely. So Michael, tell us about the path then from from stockbroker to to starting Thrive Farmers. What was that? What was that like?
2: There's a bit of a jump there, but I'll make that one short. So I did spend a few years and after seeing some things you know these guys were making the kind of money that I wanted to make right however they were doing things that were you know not okay by me just as it related to right putting self before others yeah and so so I decided to leave you know I made a, a jump to a small healthcare company that needed some To raise some capital and needed to shore up operations to expand. That was kind of a a step, a very brief step on the way to starting my next real business, which was a healthcare services business. Won't go into the details of that, but it was investor backed. I had a couple of people that wanted to back me in that business. We, you know, had a yet again, had a a really big vision as to what we thought was possible, Um, but Medicare reimbursement seesawed up and down and ultimately put us out of business. We had a non-invasive therapy that was just never going to be frontline in terms of, you know, replacing, you know, other more mainstream treatments. So after five years of of running that business, I I realized that it was not going to scale at a level to support, you know, me and a staff and growth. And so even though we left the clinic itself in in operation, I, I went to go do other things and I had also gotten married during that time, and then my marriage failed. You know, I was not mature enough for marriage. I was very self-focused. I was only really interested in how to grow my business. And I look back now, and I mean, I was wo- woefully unfair. You know, and there's always you know m- 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 much more to the story. But um, right. I just, you know, I-, I was 30 years old, and I was at a crossroads where this business that I had, which frankly did have the potential to scale very large. And, and my dream for it was, you know, big and and it coincided with the dreams of my childhood. You know, I wanted to I wanted to have a certain net worth by the time I was 30. I wanted to be on certain lists and have certain accomplishments and and, and feel like I had made something of myself. Because at that time, I thought the measure of a man had to do with what I had accomplished professionally. Had. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what you had goes back to that whole Robin Leach analogy, right? right? Right. Watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I'm like, oh, well.
0: Compare yourself to that.
2: Yeah, that's right. If you're successful, then obviously you're rich and it means you've got these things. And so so I was just, you know, I my compass was off and this didn't come from family. I didn't grow up in a wealthy family by any means. It just came from, you know, this this message that was coming out of media. Right. At the time I was I was listening to the wrong messages. And so right. so at a crossroads of 30 I was I was at a I was I was really at a dead end. I had tried to I had a concept that I had ginned up with my dad to do kind of a consolidation and roll up in that collision industry. Had a lot of reasons to think that that was going to go well. We had funding committed from some pretty big entities. The dot com bust happened, and the funding just got pulled out from under us just before closing, literally like two weeks before closing. And I had uh, a a new girlfriend and we had bought a house and we're living together. And then all of a sudden some things were blowing up and not going well there. And, um, but you know, when you're, you've got a girlfriend and you buy a house together, it's not easy just to kind of break up and go your own ways. Right. A little more involved. (laughs) involved, And we had a a dog. So he had a house and a dog. And, um, so I'll, I'll just say that I was pretty broken at that point. I just, I had all these big hopes and dreams, and almost nothing that I had planned was working out the way I thought. Not, not even close. And what happened in my personal life really changed everything and led to Thrive being created. You know, I did not grow up in a household of faith. We never, we never really talked about it. It, was, it wasn't a thing. I didn't think about is there a God? And you know, we, we had we had just n- n- no reference points. But my girlfriend at the time was working in a church in Midtown Atlanta in the nursery on Sundays, and she said, "Hey, why don't we go and visit this church where I've been working next Sunday?" And I'll mark off and not work. And so I, I didn't really. Ask him, well, I said, "Well, I guess I don't know what that's going to do, but sure. I didn't have any other answers." And I thought, right. "Why not?" Yeah. And you know, also another story for maybe another time, but that was the beginning of uh, an incredible change in my life and my understanding of you know, what my life could be about and what matters and why. And um, so we wound up, so I can say now that the full story is she's my wife of 20 years now, the mother of my three boys. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> things, things completely changed for both of us as we began a faith journey together and really recentering why why we're here and what what what's going to matter about our lives. And it started me asking the question, like, and I think too, right at 30 versus, you know, at 16 cars are the coolest thing ever. Right. But at 30, I still appreciated, you know, cool cars. It's not that they're not cool, but I certainly began to wrestle with and realize that that's not what life is made of. It certainly doesn't make you somebody. And I started, and I started to wrestle with, you know, I've never, I didn't have anybody close to me die yet, but I certainly had started to learn of people who passed away and Realize, hey, we're not promised tomorrow. We go through making our plans, but for any host of reasons, today could be my last day. And again, you don't think about that as a teenager, but as you start to get older, you realize that I'm not guaranteed any certain amount of time. And if tomorrow is my day, what is my life going to have counted for? I mean, where I live or how big my house is or what cars I own those really aren't going to matter. I'm looking at my kids and what kind of citizens are my kids and what's my legacy and what have I left in this world? And Oh, by the way, is any of that going to matter in the next life? And we all have to wrestle with that really, no matter what your faith is or is not, you still have
0: to wrestle with that. Think about that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so that really started me looking deeper in my heart. And what I realized is that we were made in such a way that material things in this world, can't fill the hole in our heart. There, we, we have a purpose that drives us, and until we find that purpose, we're going we're gonna to keep spinning, right? We're going to keep looking for something that um, gives us meaning. <clears throat> and somewhere about this time, I started another. You know, I started another company. It was another healthcare company, but <laughs> it was um, it, it was a it was a, a meant to to manage costs around high dollar implants. So hips, knees, pacemakers, defibrillators. Think of all the different implantable devices that are really expensive in the medical world. Um, <clears throat> and we had been working with certain factions and, and, and for a couple of years, part time. And then we saw an entry point at a couple of guys that were working with me on this business. And we saw an entry point to make it into a full time real business every day. And we did. And our timing was just really good. And um, that company started to really grow. We, um, I think we did about 600, 700,000 in revenue between August and December 31st of that partial year. And what, what year are
1: you? Uh, 04? That's the, all right. What that was oh, four.
2: Yeah. And the next year, the first full year we had in business, we did 3.8 million. Nice. The next year was like 9 million. Um, and then I think it was like 12 or 14, and then 19 million. So our, our growth curve just did this and we started paying out, you know, big distributions to those of us that were owners literally after 6 months. So, you know, the company growth is going high, my income is really for the first time getting up there and and I'm starting to realize some of these, you know, prior dreams of my childhood. And um for a moment I'm starting to think like oh this is this is really interesting. I'm I'm now, you know, walking in this way and fortune and you know prosperity are coming my way and i'm thinking of this exchange like okay as long as i'm generous and i'm giving some portion of what i make this is a pretty good exchange i can do that all day long and um and so for for a little while i thought this was the the method right is it i'm going to be faithful with with what i've been given here in this opportunity and i'm going to give away a certain amount of whatever i make and be a generous person but I did. I continued to um, sort of, you know, pursue my faith journey, dig deeper for you know, questions, uh, for answers to questions that I had. And in 2008, one of my dreams from 20 years prior had been, you know, I want to found a company that is on the Inc. 500 list, you know, the 500 fastest growing companies in America. I think I had just read a magazine when they came out and I was like, oh, that'd be cool. I want to be on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I claimed it. Right. And um, but in 2008, that happened. And I remember it was in August when they published published the magazine with the list. And we had known about it for a little while and had to be quiet. But when that finally happened, it was kind of exciting, like for the day that it happened. But I remember how quickly the excitement wore off. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't hang on to it. And I remember just sitting at home in, in my living room with just sobbing with tears coming down, thinking, is this all there is? I spent 20 years dreaming of this moment and I couldn't hang on to it for even a day or two. Right. And I just oh. thought, wow. wow. And and the thought was, okay, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to dream of something. And put such energy and effort into something that is that hollow when I get there. And so I remember asking God for clarity on what really matters to you. And so for a couple of years thereafter, we had, you know, some other things happen, big Silicon Valley private equity firms, Sequoia Capital, you know, kind of world famous. They came in and invested um, in our company. It was the first investment in the southeastern US in over 10 years. So you know we're on the cover of publications and you know a lot of flux of phone calls, but I remember looking at that like okay what is this what is this going to mean? And about a year after they came in, um, I realized it was you know my time to go, and you know there's a whole backstory to that obviously that I won't get into today, but it was it was very clear at that moment that that chapter for me was closing and it was time for me to really search deep and move into a place of purpose. And so I went on sabbatical, an intentional sabbatical to say what's going to be next and what is going to matter about my life. Think See, about so, that
1: self-awareness that you were mentioning before, right? Kind of coming full circle to like yeah. who yeah. are you and why are you here in this world?
2: Kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: That's incredible. Uh to go go ahead, Michael.
2: Then, well, I was gonna say I don't want to just I don't want to just drone on, but that that, you know, briefly that'll segue into you know, I I went on this sabbatical period. My boys were five, three, and one at the time. And so my wife had me commit to at least six months before I really, truly started anything else and longer if I could stand it. But literally about two, three weeks in, <laughs> you know, I went from my prior company having 60, 70 direct reports and, you know, travel and all the responsibilities of that, running operations, technology, and marketing, to waking up, you know, the next day not even going into the office,
0: nothing you know? on the agenda. Yeah.
2: Nothing, no calendar, no agenda. And I'm, it's just, it was weird, really weird. Was, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you've been an, a serial entrepreneur your whole life from cars to motorcycles to stock market. I mean, yeah. it sounds like you, you need to be doing something. Yeah. I was going to say, I think
2: I underestimated like how, how hard it was going to be because at first I'm like, Oh,
0: oh I can well, do it. this. It's right. going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Yeah. yeah.
2: No <laughs> meetings, no phone calls, no responsibilities. But, you know, a couple of weeks in, it was clear that I need something to keep my mind occupied. And I did have a really good friend who had invited me to a conference like two days after I left here in Atlanta called Plywood People, Jeff oh, yeah, Shinnebar. Right. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. we yeah. yeah,
2: He attended that last year. Yeah. So this is going back to, I think it was the first or second year Jeff had yeah. done Plywood People. There were maybe about 60 people in attendance. Amazing, and rest- amazing
1: conferences, by the way. For whoever they are. listening to this interview with you. I I strongly recommend it for for anyone that listens and and has kind of like a similar spirit when it comes to purpose and business and and finding the why of your life, if you will.
2: Yeah, that's right. I do too, because Jeff was a gift in my life at the time. He was one of multiple inputs who just raised this notion of, you know, your work having purpose, uh, which in 2011 was not something being talked about in many places. And you know, my my friend Greg, who invited me, um, had met Jeff and knew about it. And so this was, I was wrestling with kind of the concept, but I'm not sure I knew what to do about it. And then I go to the the first plywood conference where there are others wrestling with the same thing and and kind of starting to take this, you know, wide idea and put a little bit more of a box around it and say, you know, take your work that you do every day and make it count for something. And so as I'm wrestling with that, that was just a very timely and informative um, opportunity to push me in a direction. And I had an executive coach that at that point, I think I'd had maybe mm, three or four years, but somebody that had had run companies and and had re- was just really a, a wise voice of advice and guidance uh at a really critical time who helped me, you know, compartmentalize and walk through some of the pros and cons of what I'd learned over my journey and So as I'm as I'm doing that, I decided, you know, my wife's English, but she grew up in Jamaica and her dad's a coffee farmer. And (laughs) I had just at Christmas because this is late January of 2011, maybe into February now. But at Christmas, I had just been talking to him about, you know, the coffee value chain and trying to help make sense of it. And, you know, in Jamaica, like in every other country, there are units of measure that are not standardized. There's some box that has a localized name that, ha- that has, you know, a certain amount of coffee cherries in it. And these these farmers get paid a certain amount based on what's in that box. So it's consistent. They know what the box looks like and even what it measures. But it definitely doesn't equate to pounds of
0: roasted coffee. To the, right, to the yield, exactly right. That's
2: exactly right. So you have to do a lot of work. And most farmers don't know. They, they are used to selling that raw product And they lose ownership and trace transparency after that point. So it was really hard when I'm talking to my father-in-law because he just didn't have visibility in the supply chain beyond what he did and no, no sense of what he was doing in comparison to, you know, he grows Jamaican blue mountain coffee, the high altitude coffee that's worth $80 a pound in Japan. Mm. And, um, So I had met a guy in Costa Rica that had been a lawyer and retired to Costa Rica to raise his foster kids. Um, He bought a coffee farm really as a hobby, no other reason. And he had some real estate here in Atlanta that he was going to, you know, develop, sell and get income from over the years. But the big 2008 bust changed his plans. So in 2011, when I met him, he was a couple of years in to trying to figure out how to make a living on this coffee farm he bought because he didn't want to move back to the U S and start over. And um, so he had enough knowledge to help me and my father-in-law figure out, you know, how to transfer it into pounds. And we ultimately figured out, all right, he's making about $4 a pound on something that sells for 80 in Japan. So there's a big gap. (laughs) Right. Um, Wow. But you know, Jamaican politics are quite complex. There's a lot of government intervention right. um, and and taxation, shockingly, in the levels before it leaves the country. So it's it's you know, it's 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 harder than than one might think. But what I also learned is that he's getting paid better than most farmers because in Costa Rica, for example, where Ken lived lives, you know, a lot of farmers were averaging, you know, a dollar fifty a pound or a dollar seventy-five a pound and not much above the cost of production. It's only because my father-in-law's coffee has such value somewhere else that he could get the $4 and make a decent living on the yield that he had. But that opened the door for me. And as I started wrestling with it, it started you know, lining up with my prayer of, all right, wh- what's something that matters that I could go do? And what I learned, I went to Costa Rica after that. I said, okay, I need to just go walk the ground. So I went to Costa Rica And spent a week and walked farms and talked to farmers, and because everything I've been reading here talked about climate change, you know, the problem in coffee was climate change, and so I'm expecting to go hear how all these farmers they they their their plants keep dying off because of climate or something, and they 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 can't keep. But that wasn't what I learned at all. The the real toxic issue was lack of ability to predict or control pricing. And them needing to basically sell every coffee bean they could produce to get every penny they could to try to survive another year. And I just thought, okay, this is interesting. This is, and so I started to step back and looked at all these parallels from my medical device company. And I thought, okay, these are both hundred billion dollar industries. Both of them have very fragmented, disjointed supply chains that lack transparency from one layer to the next. And in both instances, the people that actually know what's wrong are the ones inside the industry who benefit from it staying the way it is, not changing it. So nobody is going to disrupt themselves. Right. Right. And so I started thinking this needs to be fixed. This isn't OK. Farmers need to be able to, I mean, coffee is more valuable and in more demand than it has ever been at any point in history. Mm -hmm. Yet the farmer can't even make a living and they're yeah. dropping out every year by double digits. So at some point, there's nobody left to grow coffee because there's no money to be made, aside from the fact that you've got families that just can't even support their the farmers that can't support their families. And so I say that at that point, you know, my heart was broken for that issue. And my I realized. Quick
1: question on that regards, uh, because for people that don't probably understand coffee the way you do, and me included on on that list, because there's only once a year, right? Harvest is once a year, and you have to kind of just hedge the whole volatility of the whole year, and you get a wrong year, then you're basically screwed for that year, and you have to start over next year. Tell us just very briefly, tactically, like what what is the kind of components of that supply chain that you just uh, briefly described, and and what are the the price drivers? because you or anyone in the U- U.S. or the Western world, if you're paying one point whatever for coffee, for a pound of coffee, but then you go to Starbucks and buy your coffee for, <laughs> it's just, you, you, there's a huge discrepancy there. You're absolutely right. You probably see it more clearly because you,
2: you, you, you know how much they're charging you for the coffee every day. Yeah, that's right. There's two components. There's the cost of production. So there are all the things that a farmer has to do to create, you know, to grow the coffee, right? And by and large, you know, there are, you know, inputs and other expenses they incur on an annual basis. And then there's, you know, equipment and land and the other things that kind of, you know, get amortized over a longer period of time. And those two things together, you know, equate to the true cost of growing coffee. And those don't really vary much year over year. As a matter of fact, they really just kind of creep up over time, right? But the price that a farmer gets paid is very volatile in coffee, especially, we ultimately found this is true for almost every agricultural product, for cocoa, for tea, for, you know, you name it, anything that's grown a far distance away from where it's consumed. But in coffee, there is a a tradable index and that index is associated with what's called commodity grade coffee. So it's really kind of low quality. A lot of it would be ingredients or just, you know, really low quality production level coffee. There's a smaller percentage of coffee, maybe 10 or 20%. that's called specialty grade, which is what you know a lot of your coffee shops are going to provide. And then there's some big brands that'll have a mixture of the two. They'll be kind of on the edge, maybe not all the way down at the bottom of the barrel, but right. they don't truly live at the top quality either. And so that index uh, fluctuates. And depending on sort of the region and the quality, there might be differentials. So if the commodity index is at $1.75, certain quality coffees, maybe, you know, 10 cents over, maybe 20 cents over. So there, there are all those factors. But but in general, the revenue that a farm can get is going to fluctuate based on what that index does. And I went into it with my kind of my uh, financial services background, thinking that these farmers probably are selling futures at the beginning of the season to get money to buy all their fertilizers and pay for labor. And, and then they just have to deliver Against that when the coffee comes in, right? So they're kind of already fixed. That was the way my brain was working. And it really couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, very little, if any, farmers are selling futures. They're borrowing money from local intermediaries who are, you know, charging very high interest rates. There's different names associated with those. And, you know, it's high risk. And so after, you know, operating businesses for a long time, I get it. You know, if you're not a good business risk, and there's a lot of variables, how do any of us offset risk? It's with margin. So they charge more and, but it's just this vicious cycle where a farmer's having to borrow money at different stages for fertilizer and for other things for big labor when they go to pick the coffee. And then it's months later when the coffee is ready to be sold, that, that farm knows what they're going to get paid for their coffee. And um, and
0: up front. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's almost like this big gambling thing, right? Where, you're you're already committed before you mm-hmm. really know what you're going to get paid. Get and when that time of year comes, and this is the way ninety nine percent of farms work. Some of them, you know, are able to get a little bit more predictability over pricing, but it doesn't stay. You know, so there are versions of volatility, but all of them live in a in a pretty wide risk corridor. And so when I went in, I just thought, well, coffee at the end point is is stable right there's not an electronic sign on the shelf for a 12 ounce bag of coffee that changes during the day right i mean it's 12 dollars for bag of coffee today next week at christmas you may get coupons every once in a while but you you know the coffee the price of coffee is fixed if you go into a store and you buy a cup of coffee that price is fixed so i just it just occurred to me if if coffee is fixed at that end can we not find a way to have the farmer participate in the stability of that price. And of course, initially I kept having people say, well, you can't do that. And that won't work. And, but so I kept saying, okay, then why? And I just, I could never get any really good reasons as to why it wouldn't work. It was just, that's never going to work. Right. And I don't know, I'm a little defiant. I'm, I'm, an, <laughs> I'm a, very much a nonconformist. I, I, I can't stand people saying that, you know, just do what you're told, just shut up and do what you're told, ask questions, right? That goes against my nature. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to challenge it. And I'm going to find out, is there you know a real substantial reason that we can't change the way this is being done? So, and and Ken, the guy that I met, um, the way he was surviving at the time, uh, he cut out all of the other layers. He didn't sell his coffee to the local co-op for it to disappear. He was roasting his own coffee bagging his own coffee and selling it to tourists at full retail (laughs) and he ran he in doing that he ran out of coffee he sold the little bit that he could produce so he started inviting other farmers in and said hey i'll show you my books and i'll do all the work but i'll give you x percent of the profits at the end and so um i thought well that that's not going to scale gracefully you can do that in a small town with your two local neighbors but conceptually what if we change that turn that around a little bit and let's create a revenue sharing model initially on consignment because we didn't have the capital to go pay for coffee but let's see if we can use the existing rails let's let's use all the existing players because we're not going to go build our own supply chain but if if we can aggregate volume and de-risk the supply chain so that the providers that do things that are necessary along the way don't have any risk, right. they become a fee for service provider. We bring them more volume and we get a better price as a result and they actually just provide that one service. And so by doing that we squeeze the balloon and we figured out that all those costs in the middle had so much risk that the real cost of the service was a lot less if we mm-hmm. took away the risk. Mm-hmm. And so we go to the end customer and say, we want to bring the farmer into partnership. We've got a model that's going to have a revenue share. The farmer gets a predetermined fixed percentage of whatever price you pay us. And they know in advance what that is. And then we're going to, we're going to add value. We're going to do all these things in the middle. And we're going to coordinate everything. We're going to build a brand story around that so people know that this is worth getting behind. And you can benefit from telling that story. and The farmer benefits right. from your stable price. And so that was really the, the genesis of how we, Decided to reinvent the supply chain in coffee, but I knew for that to matter, it had to be done at scale. If we only sell, you know, 400 pounds of coffee, that's not going to make a big impact. And you know, I've been a big dreamer, but what I figured out is that the difference in a dreamer and a visionary has to do with you know your motivation and your execution. So when you once you figure out how to really execute on it, you're not a dreamer anymore, right? You you can actually make something happen. Um, and that's what we wanted to do here. We wanted to find out, you know, how can we move containers and tens of containers and hundreds of containers of coffee, millions of pounds. And we had to partner with people that were already used to doing that and just change the way they think about it. And so as we go start telling that story, even the big guys, right, we, we sometimes think that, you know, it's just a small farmer that needs help, but even the big guys are struggling with other dynamics. And so what we came to realize is that our new way of thinking was bringing hope to small farmers, medium farmers, and even the big guys. And everybody that we talked to at the time in the supply chain wanted to participate and help support this new way of thinking. And that allowed us then to put a foot in the ground and say, we're going to do this and we're going to start and go forward.
1: This so, has been an incredible conversation. It's not only yeah, it's like so a interesting. Great- uh, experience here on your part, but it's been like a finance lesson, an accounting lesson, a strategic <laughs> strategy lesson. It's been like so much
2: more, uh, and those yeah. lessons were all much harder learned going through them than they just made it sound like. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah than you just elaborated on. I'm sure. Yeah, but
1: it's, it sounds like you've been used to that, right? I mean, you you kind of like face problems head on, and you failed many many times. So it's kind of one of those things that maybe people of this day see you and say, hey. That's the that's the overnight success. I'm like, yeah, over like a matter of um, how many businesses that failed like
2: overnight success or, only took thirty years to get there right. right.
1: but th- could you share a little bit more of the volume and impact that you're having? and we'll switch a little bit more now towards the actual organization, but how big is it? I mean, you needed the volume you started with one or two containers, and how did it scale up from there?
2: yeah, we um we did we started with um I think actually six or seven containers. We we had to change some things about the model. We started early on, as I mentioned, uh, on consignment, and we realized that that put way too much pressure on the farms. Even though we were encouraging people to give a small percentage of their overall and consider it more like a savings account, things are so tight that even small amounts put pressure. So we had to figure out financing and how to advance money, and then come back with a, a second or third payment, um, and how to reconcile. Um, but in the first, you know, year or two, it was it was really tight. I mean, I was funding it out of pocket from savings that I had in my last venture. You know, I didn't immediately have the ability to attract investors. A lot of people did well in my last venture, and I thought I would be able to. But <clears throat> here, this vision of hey, I'm going to change the world of coffee. You know, the excuses start to mount yeah. up. Like, whoa, I don't know if I want to be part of that. So, um, yeah. so it took a little while, and I had to go further and deeper than I thought uh, in in my own, you know stash and we were really bootstrapping it i mean we that first year we weren't sure if we could sell we had sourced what we later learned was a, a lot of coffee
1: w- when did you start it? what was the first year of, uh, Thrive? 2011
2: was, was the first year was the first year yeah but those containers uh, departed from that's right january we
1: departed yeah my really, or costa rica i'm guessing
2: yeah by um we we didn't ever source from jamaica it was costa rica guatemala um and ultimately honduras We had a lot of challenges in Honduras. We ultimately had to pull out um, in the second year. Uh, We've been looking for an entry point to go back in. But but since then, it's been Costa Rica, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and then Brazil and Colombia, um, which are both in the southern hemisphere and have two seasons, one major, one minor. Um, So um, and then a little bit in Africa. But we started with maybe six or seven containers the first year, maybe went to eight or nine the second year. We're extremely fortunate to be able to sell those in that first year because, for a co- startup company with no sales distribution channels, uh, that was a lot of coffee. And so there were there were definitely miracles and blessings all over that early period for us to have a shot at moving uh, what we did. But um, it was you know going into that that second full year that we got introduced to um, Chick Fil A, and they had been running a process. And we ultimately prevailed in becoming their partner chain-wide. And so we went from, and this is where, you know, the structure, that initial structure of uh, a vision of scale, right? We had we had selected partners that if that moment came, we knew we had the ability to scale up and they engaged with us. Um, and it's funny, they we had a couple of guys, one in Guatemala particularly, that said you you are this that moment is going to come for you and we're going to be ready but what you're doing has to happen um and this is a family that had been in coffee for over 100 years and truly one of the one of the captains of the industry but they said our industry won't survive without you doing what you're doing and so we're going to be part of this and um they actually came up and sat at the table with chick-fil-a when we had our initial supply chain meetings And, and we were told when we started, you got three gates of Chick-fil-A to get through supply chain, culinary and marketing, but supply chain is first. And if you don't get a green light, then you don't go, there's no
0: need Obviously, yeah.
2: Yeah. And so we, we spent a couple of weeks planning. We were a small scrappy company, right? About five employees, you know, only a couple of years in business, you know, calendar years, not even full, full years operating yet. I had the benefit of, you know, my background and having scaled up a, a successful business. And we had, you know, a structure that made sense. And then we had partners at the table that were vouched for what we were doing. And I'll, I'll say that, you know, some divine intervention had to be somewhere around that table, too, because it just didn't make sense otherwise. You know, it's just how did how did Chick-fil-A put their trust in a new little idea like ours? So we we really do feel like there was just something um you know, divine and spectacular about that moment. It was special, but you know, we never took it for granted. We had an incredible meeting with supply chain. We had presentation materials and whiteboards and we really walked through it thoroughly. And they said, we're, we're confident that you can do this. And this is really, this is who we want to be as a company. We we want our purchasing power to do good in the world. And we've, we've been looking for an opportunity like this and we, we are going to walk forward together and we view this as a marriage and, Whatever bumps we encounter, we encounter together. So we want you to know that we're with you. That's incredible. And I got to oh, tell you, that, that's I get. That's, 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 a, such a,
1: great, that's a real partnership story on the Chick Fil A side as well, right? I mean, because they took a chance on a smaller yeah. company,
0: and um, that's right. And this Back- was, and this was towards what the end of 2012. Michael, this would have been
2: 13. Yeah,
0: 2013.
2: no. Yeah. okay, approaching mid 2013. Right. But, you know, as a guy that had my whole life savings on the line and my family at risk to to have that moment occur after, if you think about my journey, right, as I described it, so many things not working out and then things seemingly working out, but not really feeling all that significant. And then I'm at a point where I decide, you know, I don't know how big or small it's going to be, but whatever from here forward, I want my life to just matter. And I want to know that I'm doing something that is really Having a positive impact in the world, Um, and then you get a company like Chick Fil A that I think just does so many things so well, and has such a great business and history. And they come in and say, "We believe in you," and all. And by the way, um, we're going to stand by you, and we're going—you know—we're not going to run for the hills if we have a a tough moment. And there have been a couple of tough moments. Nothing that I would be able to share here, but just you know, in business, those things happen. Right. And they have always been true to their word. They're the kind of people that you know, treat you the way you would want to be treated, even when you're not in the room.
0: Right. So for us, oh, that's says everything. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For us to be able to build our business with that kind of a partner will have ramifications in families around the world for generations to come. And that, that, you know, when I think about the things that I used to dream of and and thinking that, oh, if I can just be on this list or get this thing, that's going to feel, you know, significant. I realized, no, 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 what I just said a moment ago, that's where real significance is gonna come from, that there's something that we can do with our lives all day, every day, that will have ramifications around the world for generations to come. And so, you know, there's other arms that you guys have met with Mike Menina, who heads up our nonprofit foundation. I I always had a vision that, one, that a for-profit business could make a profit and still do good in the world. You don't have to choose one or the other. So we're unashamedly for profit, but that we we could take some of that. We could choose, you know, we could choose to take some of those profits and invest them in an entity that can go further and deeper in the communities where we operate. And we can help build up the leaders of tomorrow. We can help create solutions to problems or bring resources to bear to create solutions to problems that they face. Right. Um, you know, we believe that we can, help, you know, solve some root causes that we all deal with. And so so we've tried to take our, our business and look at it holistically and say, how can we do business differently, you know, day by day? And then with the relationships and the trust we've developed, what else can we do with that? And so ThriveWorks is, you know, one example of that on the nonprofit side. And I've got an innovative mindset. I'm very, you know, I love to think creatively and innovatively. And so when I get to do that through the lens of our business, it, it starts to reach into products and services and, you know, this really long runway of opportunity that we see to, to do this around the world and in different ways and right. with different partners. And so. Um, and it's been
1: from there to, um, to changing communities, right? I mean, I know, and I've actually talked to Mike menina and some, some other people on your team and. What you what you're doing through your vision and your strategy and just this sheer purpose-driven mentality that your businesses have, I think that you're just really changing the life of a lot of people. Like you, you're building schools and you're helping people uh, get better education, and that's right. Even uh, a Clean soccer fields and basketball fields, and just you're to really trying to develop this communities in Nicaragua to the point. And this is. By the way, we will probably have to schedule another conversation because we're totally out of time here, but it's been so incredible. Yeah, yeah we will. <laughs> but, but at some point, even to the point that you said, uh, uh, and, and that the uh, immigration program problem that we have in the U.S., it's yeah. entirely linked to this same issue with coffee. If we were to pay better rates for their coffee, people wouldn't have to go through all that incredibly adventure that in in a bad way that that kind of entails to go from your country leave everything behind and just start walking towards the north trying to look for a better life it's just if people really understood what you had already explained to us so clearly and your business model has proven to everyone we could stop one of the biggest problems that the the world has right like
2: immigration well you touched on that we're extremely passionate about it because I've got a a conviction. I call it no toxic charity. You know, I want to be helpful, but I want to do it in a way that's productive and sustainable. You know, no Band-Aid programs, no enabling. I want to look for root solutions, right? Root causes, root solutions. And so when we go into a community, we're able to, you know, systemically pay a livable wage for coffee, um, do it with a partner that gets what we're doing and why, And is willing to support that and communicate that to their customers and stand behind it for years on end not just hey this is good for marketing this year and then next year something else it's like you know wholly committed and so now we can all think long term and we do have the ability to completely change the dynamic as it relates to what you know immigration people don't have a need to leave because they don't want to leave trust me i've sat around tables and i can tell you about conversations these men do not want to leave their families and go have to look for work in the U.S., but the options locally just don't exist, and well, so they're yeah, forced to do it. Yeah.
0: Um, Michael, telling talk about uh, uh, programs and Enrica. I know you should be we running out of time, but but you launched uh, uh, ThriveWorks Labs last July. Uh, I saw. Can can you tell us the thought thought process behind starting that, and and how that's looking now, six seven months later?
2: Yeah, it's still quite early, um, and that was really you know credit goes to Mike Menina. Uh, we're fortunate to have somebody with. His skill set and experience and talents to lead an organization. You know, I I birthed a vision for what I wanted us to focus on as it relates to leadership development and, you know, community involvement and programs and things that we could help, you know, maybe coach and assist forward through what became Thrive Works. But Mike, about a year ago, year and a half ago, started to have, you know, other ideas as to how could a nonprofit function in these communities and bring different types of innovation. And he had somebody that came on as a fellow who was extraordinarily bright um, and talking through ideas. And so this this idea of Thrive Labs, Thrive Works, the labs was birthed where, you know, what Thrive Works does every day really is tries, is enhances our business model relationship, right? It's just an accelerator of the relationships that we have through our business model, this idea of commerce where, you know, we provide something of value, but so does the farmer and we both benefit from it. But labs is really charged with, you know, thought leadership and innovation. What are things that, that can go further, right? Does it have to do with other things going on in the world that could then be brought into and add value to these communities and these farming families? So they're very early in the incubation stage, I would say, but the premise is to incubate ideas that will right. accelerate and go Indeed. further yeah. than just the Thrive Farmers model, because what we really care about um, are the communities, right, the people, right. as it relates to the Thrive model. Now, we've learned, we talk talked so much about the farmers, we've also learned that we have to be very vocal at saying, hey, our own team members are as important as our farmers. We, we, we can't, you know, leave our team behind and just focus on farmers. So, I want to be careful that you know we we care about all people, our team internally, vendors and partners that we do business with, customers, clients, you know, out in the world, whether we buy from them or they buy from us, and our farmers. So, it, it's it's an entire chain that exists, you know, in harmony together. So. Right. right.
1: We will link. uh, We had the pleasure of interviewing Mike Menina as well. So we'll link it to this episode as well. And of course, uh, Michael, if you don't mind, I think that we have tons of tons of different questions, very interesting questions you have to cover. If you don't mind, we would love to have you back at some point before we kind of like close this uh, interview. I would just like to ask you one very brief, quick question. Did you love coffee as much as you probably do now before you started all this? Was coffee even a part of your life? No
0: really
1: interesting <laughs> i'm so happy that you said that because
2: uh right. i wanted i wanted to love coffee but i couldn't find coffee i liked it was always what i what i've come to learn now is apparently i was always drink i was always drinking dark really dark right. roasted coffee right. that was not pleasant and um so i had kind of given up on coffee my wife girlfriend at the time introduced me to english tea right it was black tea with yep. milk and sugar oh, yes. Right. So I was a tea guy, and <laughs> I started delving into coffee. That's and then sure. I started to realize, oh, wait a minute, there are different ways to enjoy coffee. And I got back into it, and then and then I realized, and so now I love coffee, and I actually also love tea. Well,
0: well funny, thank you so much. Oh, God, no, no, I could have, I could have, I think I could have ruined the relationship with uh, with Thrive two years ago when Enrique and I went to to meet Mike at your offices and. <laughs> And uh, he made the the coffee from scratch and weighed the water and did everything. And uh, I committed the mortal sin of asking for milk and sugar. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what we say
2: is enjoy it the way you like it. Exactly. And I drink coffee black almost all the time now. But there are times where I enjoy if it's a little darker roast. I still enjoy some cream and a little sugar in it. So. There you go. All right. Yeah. I feel, I feel. Enjoy it any way you like it. That's the thing. I'm <laughs> taking the shame away from you. You're free now. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing it with me. <laughs> Two years
1: uh, kind of uh, carrying that burden, Adrian. Yeah,
2: yeah exactly. Um, exactly. I
1: feel freer now. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. Again, this has been an incredibly engaging conversation with you. What you've done is inspirational and inspired a lot of people to kind of start acting more purpose mentality. And so thank you. Thank you so much for participating. For everyone else that listens to this episode, if you like interesting conversations like the one that we just had with Michael, please don't don't hesitate to join us. Please hit subscribe. And thank you very much. We'll see you again on another episode of Logistics with Purpose. This is Enrique Alvarez and Adrian Portrillo. Have a good day and thank you once again for listening.